So today um, we are really privileged. I told you a while ago we, we had Paul Young, uh, we had Gungor, we've, we've been doing the Shack series, and I said, let's go on a journey together. Open your mind and let God speak to you and let him challenge you. And, and, uh, and so it sort of is culminating here on Palm Sunday, and uh, we've been looking forward to this for a very long time. And we're really privileged to have uh, Tony Jones with us as you know, he's authored the book, Did God Kill Jesus? And um, he, uh, he's been, we were talking last night, he's done a lot of youth ministry things, as I have. And uh, although I found out he has a PhD in theology. So uh, now all the things that I say, he can sort of back me up. How many know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I know a lot of you guys look at me sideways most of the time. So anyway, no, we're really, really honestly thrilled to have him. Would you please give a, a, a rowdy Orchard Grove welcome to Tony Jones this morning? Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Yep, yep, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, so, Tony, what I thought uh, would be great to start with is, uh, you know, I've, I've had people, we've been talking about this book. We've been selling it in the bookstore. For Grins, how many of you already got a copy? And Everybody, you know, raise your hands. <laughs> and, okay, look at that. That's awesome. And, um, and it's, a, it's a fascinating, it grabs you because of the title, Did God Kill Jesus? And our staff went through it about a year ago, I think. We read it as a staff. So I thought I would start with the most obvious question, which is, why? Why did you decide to write a book called Did God Kill Jesus? Uh, well, you, you talked about how we've both done youth ministry, and you know the opening story of the book is from when I was a youth pastor, and I took a group of kids to a weekend retreat that was part of the denomination I was, I was uh, working in when I was in seminary in Southern California. And uh, the culminating talk on Saturday night, I recount in the book, and it was, uh, the guy gave a talk that was so bloody and so guilt-ridden. Uh, and, you know, I'm watching these. This was, these were middle school kids I had taken. So they're 11, 12, 13 years old. Mm. And they've got this guy telling them at, at, the, at like the, the zenith of his talk when he's just whipped them into this like emotional frenzy kind of. And he says, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he saw your face. And he whispered your name. You hung Jesus on the cross. And these are 12-year-old kids, right? Mm. And uh, I thought, man, these kids do not have the like, developmental wherewithal to know that this guy is preaching a false gospel. <laughs> you know, like, mm. I didn't, and mm. I couldn't really stand up. And now the th- funny thing is, as the story goes on, just to relieve the tension in the room, the, as the story goes on, I was with a bunch of like inner city kids because that's the kind of church I was at, and they weren't they weren't kind of hip to evangelical culture, and they didn't know they were supposed to like everybody goes forward at the retreat every winter oh, wow. and gives their life to Jesus or recommits their life to yeah. Jesus. So when they gave that, then the guy gave the altar call, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing, and my kids were all like, "Nah," and they got <laughs> like. <laughs> they all went to the canteen because they were like, there's popcorn and, and hot chocolate when you're done. And so my kids were like, hot chocolate? And they were out. And all well, the other kids were like, oh, well, this is when we recommit our lives to yeah. Jesus at the end of this talk. Yeah. But that was just one of those experiences I had where I thought, it was the, it was the big dilemma for me. 
It seems to me, theologically, that the mission of God in the world and the mission of Jesus in the world can't be at odds with one another. Because I like firmly, firmly believe in the Trinity, mm. that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have one mission, a mission of love in the world. And the primary version of Jesus' death on the cross, what theologians call the atonement, that thing that happened when Jesus died that made humanity and divinity at one again, mm-hmm. brought us back together in a way we hadn't been since the garden, that um, it, if it's that God's mad at us and turns his wrath on his own son, mm-hmm. that that seemed to me counter to the whole message of Jesus. So like God has a split personality at that point yeah. of some sort, right? Yeah, somehow... The father's mad, but the son's good. The father's mad. So it's, they're one. It, a lot of us yeah. heard these kind of talks when, in our youth ministries when we were growing up. Like, Jesus, uh, God is so mad at you. When he sees your face, he's disgusted because of your sin, mm-hmm. because God is pure holiness and your original sin and depraved. But Jesus stands between us. So it's, uh, I use this metaphor. Good cop, bad cop a little bit. Yeah, really. Like I even use this, this kind of metaphor in the, in the book that may be a little over the top, but it's like God's aiming his gun to like take you out because of your sin. And Jesus like jumps, Elliot Ness or whatever, jumps in the, and takes the bullet for you, you know, and... Um, and I heard a lot of this stuff when I was growing yeah, up in youth yeah. group. And it, and, and it doesn't diminish the, the value of Jesus. It just no. it kind of makes you question the heart of God, the Father, I guess, in a way, right? Because Jesus For is a sure. hero either way, right? It's this yeah. angry, wrathful God the Father, which is it's hard to process when you're young, right? You, the, the Trinity. Well, it's hard to process at any age. Super hard to process it when you're young. So, you know... Y- um, I've done these experiments when I've been speaking at churches and said, like, uh, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, Jesus died for your sins? You know, every hand goes up. <laughs> and then I'll be like, okay, now turn to the person next to you and explain how that works in 60 seconds or less. And everyone's like, uh, yeah, I don't really know how it works. I just know it's true. And so I'm like, as a theologian, I want to know how it works. Like, by what cosmic mechanism... Yeah. Did the death of one person, divine person... Fix things. Fix things for everybody for all time. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think... We believe that, but how did it work? Yeah, that, we that should became, know. Like, we should know how Tony, it works. did that lead you to your studies? Or was it part... Was it kind of all mixed in together? I mean, did it lead you going, I got to study this? Because you have some really interesting history in here as well, right? When... Yeah, the, ideas- kind of the first thing that cracked open for me was that um, I was... I was asked to speak at um, an evangelical college in upstate New York. And like a week before I was going to speak, I got a call from the chaplain who had invited me to speak. And he's like, hey, we're taking a ton of heat because you're speaking at this, at this, at our college. Like trustees are threatening to quit and they're like never going to give money to our college again because of your views on this. Like they, they Googled you and found something they didn't like, you know? So they're like, so... But here's how we're going to appease them. Instead of, you're going to give two t- instead of giving three talks, you're going to give two talks. And your third talk, you're going to debate two members of our theology department. I'm like, 
all right. Wow. I, I can handle that. Right. That should be fun. <laughs> so I give my two talks, and at the third talk, I'm, I, I'm like sitting on a stage, and there's a member, two members of the theology department on either side of me. This is a Wesleyan school, so it's like the, conserv- the evangelical form of me- Methodists, okay? okay? And so it's like their student body and then a bunch of local pastors who are there. And so we do some kind of opening statements, and then there's a, a guy asks a question, and he says, um, a pastor from the crowd, and he says, you, you and your friends have said that the, this one form of the atonement, which we can talk about the technical terms for it, the penal substitutionary atonement, which I can unpack in a second, that you have said and your friends have said that's divine child abuse, you're a heretic. Which, you know, when you get called a heretic at a pastor's conference, the temperature tends to rise yeah. in the room. Yeah, they're not going to serve you lunch. Yeah, right, right exactly. Yeah. Um, before I could answer, one of my debate partners, the, the, theolo- the chairman of the theology department at this school, he was mad. He said, you cannot call him a heretic, and here's why. Mm. Heresy means that you deviate from something that happened in early church councils. In the first nine ecumenical councils of the church that happened in the first thousand years of the church. Right. That's the trinity. That's the inspiration of scripture. That's the dual human divine nature of Jesus. There are certain things. Did I those, tell you he had a PhD in theology? There are thir- certain <laughs> things that those councils decided. Yeah. They never debated the nature of the atonement. Yeah, yeah. You are free, as long as you hold the death and resurrection of Jesus as the pinnacle of everything God has done in the world. Yeah. How exactly that worked, that's not something that you can be called a heretic for. Right. So and I, I was like... Yeah. That's the he's that's standing good up for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He stood up for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, be, I want to talk just for a minute. It's Palm Sunday. Um, we had our own theological debate, and uh, I lost. So we have palms here today because it's very important that you get through your week with a palm. So, uh, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about that, yeah. and let's walk into the, the the what happened, and then let's talk about how the church has viewed it. Sort of. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about. So it's Palm Sunday. And historically, this is the week that Jesus went into Jerusalem. Yeah, People yeah, yeah. Wave their palm branches. Yeah, you've already heard it referred to as as the Passion of Christ. It's yep. considered. It's called the Passion Week. Yep. In more liturgical traditions, and it starts. You know, we the Lenten journey started on Ash Wednesday, yep. and Ash Wednesday, and you know, for, for more in more liturgical um, traditions than probably this one, what you do is you actually keep those palms, and then a year from now, they're dried out, you burn them, and that's what you use for the ashes on the forehead on Ash Wednesday. Right. And then Lent, which is a word that means lengthening because the days are getting longer, it's the 40-day journey from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday. Yep. And then the Passion Week starts on Palm Sunday. And it's, you know, um, some people have called the Gospel of John a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Like, the fourth Gospel is really all about 
this week. This week. This week. Yeah. There's some other stuff that goes before it, but you know, the Gospel of John doesn't like... And all the Gospels give it an exorbitant amount of time yeah, for sure. to the last week. This is what it's all about. Right. Yeah, this yeah. is what it's all so about. So this is huge. Yeah. And what happened on that day in history when the palms were waved and Jesus rides into Jerusalem? Well, you know, there's what, all what happened this, Yeah, on that like day? Jesus' followers were so perplexed about what it meant for him to be the Messiah. I mean, first of all, there was confusion about whether he was the Messiah or not. And he, was, he had this thing that um, theologians call the messianic secret, which is one of the oddest things in the Gospels. It's when people kind of figure out who Jesus was, and then he's like, hey, don't, yeah, yeah. Shh, don't tell anybody. It's interesting. It's called the messianic secret. Don't say anything. You'd think it would be the opposite. You'd think he'd be like, tell everybody. <laughs> like, yeah, right. let's make these crowds bigger. Yeah. But Why does he do that? Instead... Oh, yeah. Well, that's next week. All right, that's next week. (laughs) Why did he do that? I mean, nobody, first of all, nobody really knows because he never explains why he says, don't tell anybody. It's it's an odd deal. We get a little bit of an insight to it when Jesus is coming down from the transfiguration Mm -hmm. and he says, um, don't tell anybody what you've seen, you know, when he's transfigured and Moses yeah. and Elijah are on either side of him. And then he says to the three disciples who went up there with him on the mountain, don't tell anybody about this until right. the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And then they discuss, what is it, rising of, what does yeah. this mean? Because I think we think, of course, you, you want to tell everybody all the time. Yeah. But you know, I had heard, or maybe I had read, I, I can't remember, but someone's liking it to, it wasn't the time, like, in other words, his popularity could have mushroomed too fast too early and you know do you think there's part of that like he's just trying to say i'm waiting for the right time i mean there's uh it could be that it could be that jesus own i mean this this is i i this is a controversial thought so it's just speculative sure i'm giving that caveat it could be that jesus own self-awareness of his messianic role mm-hmm. had not fully cemented within him yet mm-hmm. like this is this is a cause of a lot of theologians spend time wondering and uh, writing about jesus own self-awareness yeah. of his messianic role it's a really interesting and of his own divinity yeah yeah, yeah. it's a very because um i mean for me it's theologically very important that jesus was fully human mm-hmm. like he really was tempted in the wilderness by satan yeah. it wasn't just like i know i'm god so like these temptations are kind of fake it's like the it was a real temptation jesus yeah. really experienced humanity yeah and so part of it you know part of we talked about of, that a little bit last week it's funny because that's yeah. to like a god switch like he didn't switch over to the god mode to get through certain things right but yeah he, i mean he, that's he tricky. was human right that's tricky if you think that humanity. god had like got, like Jesus' divinity was like his trump card, and he was always yeah, right. yeah. like, yeah, yeah, we can be all human all we want, but I'm just going to like, boom, God. And yeah. you're like, oh, yeah. man, there he goes. Like, yeah. Jesus wins every poker game. Cause, you, know, right. you know? Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. It'd be a bummer. You wouldn't <laughs> ask him to come to your poker night anymore. So some people say that Jesus' divinity was like, I had a seminary professor explain to me, like, he goes, you know how you look in the mirror and you know you have a back? but you never see it. That's how Jesus' divinity was. He mm. was like, it was something within him, but he didn't. So all this to get to, when Jesus enters Jerusalem 
on the day we commemorate as Palm Sunday, people were singing his praises. They were shouting Hosanna in the streets. They were throwing palm branches and their cloaks down in front of him as he rode in. Mm -hmm. Not on a Roman general's horse, but on a donkey. Right. You know, so like, they have one thing in mind. They're thinking military for or sure. political ruler. For sure. They're thinking, this guy's going to get us out of the mess that we're in with the Romans. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 and he's coming in knowing, I'm a different... And by the way, he's weeping, right? Yeah. As he's come, yeah. So he knows they don't get it. Yeah. I mean, partly for me, the palms, to me, are the fact that people don't get it. Right? Yeah. The crowds didn't get it. And yeah. the palms symbolized victory and... We're going to win. And so it's, it's kind of a free military parade almost in a way, right? And they're going to celebrate Passover, which is freedom. Yep. It's the big festival of the year, uh, a freedom festival for them. Yeah, you know, military parades and, and victorious military parades were very common throughout the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So for, for somebody to come into a town like that, this is, if anybody's ever visited Rome, you've seen these triumphal arches. And, and when a, a victorious Roman general or emperor, they would be given a triumph. And when they would come back to Rome, they would parade through the streets with all their um, prisoners of war and all their booty in front of them. Mm -hmm. And then the, um, the general would come through on a chariot and they would go under these triumphal arches. And there's like, now there's one in Paris that kind of is a hearkening back to the Roman Empire, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So for, for a military victor to roll into a town was it would bring up it would have all the symbolic energy around it yeah. Yeah. you know but of course jesus doesn't come in with any prisoners of war or any booty he's not in riding in a chariot yeah he's just like a rabbi and people think I'm but there donkey. are definitely certain people within like his group his posse yeah. who think he's the next king david yeah like he's going to move back into the temple and he's going to take, he's going to like throw off Roman oppression. Like yeah. these imperial oppressors are going to be kicked out. We're not going to be a colony anymore. Right. We're going to be back to a military power in this part of the world. So he comes into this massive misunderstanding. Yeah. But meanwhile, in Jerusalem, waiting for him, you know, are these names that we all read in the New Testament of like, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And there's another group that some people think Jesus was a part of called the Essenes. Mm -hmm. um, basically political parties yep. within Jerusalem who are all kind of like struggling for how Israel should be in this Roman emperor, yep. em empire era. And so Jesus comes in with his own band and it kind of upsets what was already a pretty tense political situation in Jerusalem. And they're all like, who's this dude? You know, yeah. like, rabbi from Galilee? Yeah. Like, they're like, well, yeah. goodbye. Right. You know? And, and, the, and the tide turns quickly on, on Jesus, and then uh, we're going to treat him as we do thousands of yeah, other yeah, yeah. threats to the Roman Empire. We're going to crucify him. Right. I mean, the, it, when you read those passion narratives of what happens during Holy Week... The climax of the story is Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. Like him going into the temple, turning over the tables, releasing these animals that were being sold for the Passover sacrifice. Um, that's really, that was the thing that, 
the people who saw that were like, okay. You can't do that. Like, you can preach some crazy stuff on the street yeah. or whatever. You, do, you can raise the dead. You know, you don't get to mess with the temple. Gotcha. And that's a bridge too far. Mm. And so that's really when the tide turned and like his, Jesus' death was then imminent. Gotcha. So the crucifixion itself, yeah, uh, horrible way to die. Uh, uh, horrible way to die, but uh, not uh, unique to Jesus. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. Hmm. Like in in the in the revolt of the slave Spar- the slave revolt of Spartacus, which you remember the Kirk Douglas movie Spartacus. And remember at the end of the movie, he's like hanging on the cross, and his wife and son are in a little chariot and. Then, like, Cecil B. DeMille pans back, mm-hmm. and you just see, like, crosses for miles. And, and that's, yeah, I think the Romans, in, at, after the, they put down that slave revolt of Spartacus, they crucified 6,000 people in, like, a week. Yeah. So. Wow. But, in, but it, uh, so, it, in some ways, it can be like, you think of that, and you think, Oh, that's kind of disappointing because I thought Jesus' death was unique. That's why I wear a cross around my neck. Or right. what, um, but then you think maybe the beauty of Jesus' death on a cross is that it wasn't unique in that Jesus suffered and died like thousands of others who were on the margins of an imperial power mm. suffered and died. Yeah, yeah. Like Jesus died in full humanity, mm. not, um, not one out of, you know, not one of a kind, yeah. but like one out of thousands. So, but, you, but in, in our Christian tradition, we believe something special happened. Yeah. And that, yeah. so from a distance, it looked like every other crucifixion. Right. But we believe something special happened. Yeah, so and that's, that's what your book gets That's into. what the book's about. Because, of course, how... Je- I mean, it's interesting to think about, like, how Jesus died. And some physicians think you, um, you died by crucifixion because you suffocated. And other people think you die of shock or something like that. Or you die... You ultimately die of um, dehydration or something like that. But, of course, the uniqueness of Jesus is not that he died because all human beings die, whether it's whether it's in a horrific execution or yeah. getting intended hit by a bus to, or whatever. Intended to humiliate, intended yeah. to threaten, yeah, for sure. intended for sure. to send a message yeah, for sure. to everybody. I was reading in Tom Wright's book, I was telling you, like, he, he was describing how oftentimes they left bodies up there. And oh, yeah. Animals and vultures would, for sure. would peck away at the bodies. It, the Romans intended to send a oh, clear yeah. message. It was, like, it was like a first century billboard. Yeah. These... Crosses. Right, they put them on the roadside. Oh yeah, on yeah. every road going into Rome, in and out, crosses. right outside the city gates. Often, right, right. the high traffic areas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, you know that old phrase, "All roads lead to Rome." And well, every one of these roads in the first century would be would have been lined with crosses, and some of them would have had people dying on them, and other mm. others would have had three month old corpses hanging there mm. that had been picked at by animals and stuff like that. Yeah. The uniqueness of Jesus' death is that something happened for us in his death. Something unique. Yeah. Something that saved us. Yes. From what? That's a question. What exactly happened? Was there some kind of transaction between God and Jesus? Mm -hmm. 
Um, was there some kind of thing that happened between God and Satan? Now, these are all the ways... He, so here's the kind of thesis statement of the book. Is this. Jesus' death is the answer. It's the question that has changed. Hmm. So throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, the church has always held up Jesus' death as the answer. It is the single most important thing that's ever happened in all of cosmic history. Mm -hmm. It's the hinge point on which everything turns. Right. This is a huge week. Yeah. What we're thinking about, what we're talking about. Yeah, this about, is what this what week's all about. Good Friday, yep. It's why Catholics go and make the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday or go to confession this week. It's why we have Maundy Thursday services where we reenact Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples mm -hmm. and the first time he you know, ser served the yeah. Holy Communion, things yeah. like that. It's all about this week. But the, question, but, the, but the question of what the crucifixion solved, mm -hmm. that's changed. Yes. So let's talk about the big one. You start with the big yeah. popular the big idea. Yeah. The big pop let's talk about what that is. The popular idea that's pretty widespread today. The popular one I call the payment theory of the atonement. Now atonement is a big word and it means at, it really means what your youth pastor taught you. At one -ment. Atonement is, is simply a, a theological jargony term that means something when two things that are separate are brought together. And that's God and humanity brought back together. We were separated when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and Jesus death on the cross somehow brings us back together. Okay. That's why we talk about atonement. Okay. And um, so the payment model is The payment model is what? was was primarily written by a guy named Anselm at, in in about uh, around the year 1000, 1000. So about halfway into Christian history. So this, this to, like to me this is big cuz yeah, please. Youth pastor please. in me, right? Are you so, going to build a bridge? No, right here's now? the church, yeah. right? This is 2,000 oh, yeah. years ago. Yep. Right? Birth of the church. This is 2,000 years later. This is today. Yep. Right? In the middle, 1,000 years. I mean, 1,000 years is a long time. A guy writes a theory or yep. expresses a theory yep. that you're going to describe to us. And he says, Our sin dishonors God. We've taken honor away from God. Like when your kids act up at the store. Yeah. So we owe you're God. You're making me look bad in the store yeah. here. You, yeah, you dishonored we, and me. And God is the perfect, you know, perfect being in all the universe. And God is what God deserves and demands from us is total and perfect honor at all times. But we dishonor God. So now we're in God's debt. We owe God something. And so we go to our bank account. There's not enough in there. There's not enough in your bank account to pay God back everything you owe God. You will always be in God's debt. And mm -hmm. so this guy's theory went. This is what I learned, by the way. Yeah, this is what we all learned. This really? is what we all were did, taught. Did you guys learn that? Did, how many of you learned this? No one's. If you've, ever heard the, if you've ever heard the one about like, um, there's a judge. You probably, I used this one when I was a youth pastor. Okay. There's a judge. And he can condemns the criminal to death. Yes. And then he stands up, takes off his robe, and goes to the electric chair yes. on behalf of the criminal. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. So this, 
this person. And so then, th- this is a little bit later version of that theory, of the payment theory, because it becomes a penalty theory. Like, we, we need to be penalized and punished for what we, how we've dishonored God. Yeah. And we can't... You could send us to the electric chair a thousand times, and it wouldn't be enough to pay back the dishonor we've done to, to God because we're imperfect beings. Yeah. So God has to look around for somebody who can actually pay the debt. Right. Jesus, his perfect, sinless son. Gotcha. So God looks around. You can't pay it. You can't pay it. You can't pay it. Who can pay it? He oh, can't he just get over it. Can't get over it. He can't get over he it. He can't forgive it. Right. Because his justice demands payment. Right. Seems a little weird. When you, when you think about when it. When you think about it. When you think about because, it. Because, for instance, you go back to that um, judicial... It's like a dad. That, I was saying that. this other week. It's like a dad that just can't get over himself because one of the kids misbehaved. Yeah. It's like and if you, I just got to take like it out on somebody. Your, it's like if you grounded your kid and you never had mercy. Like, I grounded my 12-year-old this week for two weeks. Really? What do you do? Can we say that? He was dishonoring to me. I mean, <laughs> he, was, he, was, he, was, he was disobedient. He Something was, happened. He was opposition. You grounded him. I said, I said to him, like, this baby like, shows that I have Did the, you take the his PhD hockey language. away from him? I'm like, you're being very oppositional right now. <laughs> What's oppositional, Dad? But guess what? But I said, but, but what I did was before I left town, not only because I didn't want my wife to have to, you know, have... Like have him in the house the con- a whole time I'm out of town while I'm gone. I had mercy, and I was like, you know what? You've been so good this week. I'm wiping out the second week of your grounding. Like you show mercy to people all the time. We forgive people, and if we can do it, you would think the God of the universe could actually also get over the. Fa- and there's another problem with this theory too. God made us like this, mm. right? Mm. God made us fallible and god knew we were going to sin it's not like god's like i cannot believe those people sinned again god's like oh yeah of course they sinned again that's how i made them Mm. to like i knew they would sin and then you want to if you want to like peel a layer of the onion another layer of the onion you go like well why did god create us to sin well because god wanted to have a relationship with freely rational human beings with freedom. With freedom to choose. to choose for or against God. Like, yeah. what, what joy would it bring to God if we were all just robot automatons? Oh, thank you, God. Like, you know. I, I, was, I was thinking of this uh, years ago. My niece had got this doll that you would either squeeze or pull the lever and mm-hmm. go, I love you. You're so pretty. And so <laughs> she was just all afternoon fascinated with this doll. I love you. You're so pretty. It was automated. Yeah. I wanted to just take that thing and wring its neck because, you know, there was no... I mean, it was programmed to say, I love you. You're right. so pretty. And it, after a while, it just annoyed you because there's no And sincerity. I'm sure by the second day, even sh- the girl, the yeah, niece yeah. was like, kind of, I'm kind of over you telling me how great right. I am. So, I mean, and then that's an extreme, but it's kind of true, right? If God made us like wind-up toys that just say, I love you. You're yeah. so amazing. Yeah, yeah. We, and it's just so odd to think of this idea that God made us to be this way and then he's mad at us for being this way. So he has to kill his own son as like 
where is the Trinitarian love do, between do the think, Father do, and the Son? Do you think sometimes that? us humans project our things onto God? That's what I've wondered. Oh, for like, sure. You know, like we get so mad about stuff, and so we, we kind yeah. of project this. Yeah, and thing every theory God. of the atonement, and I think, I mean, I'll, I'll go through other versions of the atonement this afternoon at five in that class, and yeah. I'll go, you know, I'll kind of be a little more systematic about them, but. Um, Every version of the atonement is bound to a particular time. So, you know, Anselm is writing his theory of the atonement right at the time that the Magna Carta is being written. Well, what's the Magna Carta? It's the first constitution. Yeah. It's like the Western legal... So, even even this metaphor of, like, the judge, you know, which, by the way, when, when you hear that on a youth retreat and you're like, I can't believe... God went to the electric chair for me. But then later, you're a little older and you think like, there's not, there's like not a courtroom in the world where they would let that happen. Mm. If the judge took off his robe and was like, no, I'm going to go to the electric chair for this guy. Everybody would be like, no, you're not. That doesn't, that's not how it works. (laughs) You don't get to like take that guy's punishment. He's still a criminal. He's still guilty, even if you're dumb enough to go to the electric chair for him. Like, we're still going to, you know, make him pay for his crimes too. So, um, but yes, for sure, L- these kind of judicial legal understandings of Jesus' death mm-hmm. make a lot of sense to us because we live in, a, in the most litigious society in 10,000 years of human history, mm. our society, most litigious, yeah. most laws, most lawsuits, most judges, most police forces, like yeah. Yeah. In, the, in, 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 uh, in the year 500, if you would have use this kind of, you know, metaphor and a judge and a jury and an electric chair, they would have been like, yeah, had no frame of reference for that. A couple of things. Um, we're going we're gonna to run out of time. We're just, like, we're just getting in. But uh, let me do the best I can say that there's a class tonight. Tony's going to do a class on this. Now, I want to say a couple of things. Um, this is a lot. This is huge in terms of some of you grew up with this and this is what you know. And so you, you kind of maybe rocked some people a little bit hard. Hope so. And you don't expect, I hope so. <laughs> but you don't also expect that you can just flip a switch and go, oh, no, I get no. it. So it's a process of, yeah, I guess maybe that doesn't make sense. And, and I would also say that there is, of course, there are verses in the Bible that talk about Jesus as our substitute. I mean, Paul uses that substitute kind of language that mm-hmm. Jesus did something that we couldn't do. So I'm not trying to say this isn't a- at all valid. I'm mm-hmm. just trying to say there are a lot of ways, if, if you think of it this way, it's like the cross. You can shine one spotlight on it from one angle mm-hmm. and see it one way, or you can shine spotlights from multiple, mm-hmm. and you can see a more kind of fully beautiful cross mm-hmm. by knowing there are a lot of different ways to understand it. Yeah. So I'm not trying to blow this one off and say it's totally wrong, just saying like it's one of several versions of how we understand Jesus' death. Yeah, yeah. And one that was introduced late into late, the game. Late, pretty late. Yeah, which pretty late. now a thousand years, it feels like it's been around forever. Yeah. But if you back up further, it's like, well, it's not so original, in other right. words. Yeah. Um,